Hey, I'm Stephen Hovatter, the lead minister at Central Church of Christ in Little Rock, Arkansas. Our goal as a church is to follow Jesus together. So we gather on Sunday mornings for Bible study at 9 a.m. and worship at 10, 15 a.m. And you'd always be welcome to join us. To learn more, go to arcentralchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon. As a people who are following Jesus together, we find ourselves, as you do when you walk along a road with somebody, we find ourselves having all kinds of conversations that we see and we pass along the way. And I want to have one of those conversations with you today um, as we walk this part of the road, the part of following Jesus that is following Jesus on the way of the cross. And we've been following Jesus in our conversations on the way of the cross for the last a few weeks. We're going to do this for a couple weeks more. Thinking specifically about this journey that Jesus goes to that will certainly lead him to his death on the cross where he's crucified. But there are, we don't just jump to that part of the story as we read it in the Gospels. The Gospels actually slow walk us to the cross. Being careful to pay attention to some things that we see along the way. And so we spent a little time thinking about what it meant for Jesus to not just be crucified, but what it meant for him to be betrayed in the garden. And not just what it meant for him to be crucified, but what it meant for him to be tried and not found guilty, yet except still sentenced to death. And today, there is another part of the story that leads us on towards the cross. It is very important in the way that the gospel writers tell that story, though we might easily skip ahead. If you will read with me in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. And this is just after Pilate has handed him over to be crucified. And this is what we read. And then the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole cohort, which is the division of the, the guards, the division of the soldiers that were there. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him. And they began saluting him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck his head with a reed, they spat upon him, they knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, it stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. Perhaps the story could easily have been told without this section of the story where the soldiers gather to mock, belittle, and humiliate Jesus 
before killing him. It is incredible in its cruelty and dehumanization of Jesus that this man, before he will be killed in a brutal way, they pause, they hold up, and they say, that's not enough. It's not enough that he is to be slaughtered, to be, enough to that he will be brutally, physically killed. He must be fully and completely humiliated beforehand. Before there was a cross, there was a crown. A crown of thorns, which is one of the great symbols of this moment of the crucifixion. And this moment where these soldiers take this crown and they put it on his head and they bow down before him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews, and they mock him and they spit on him. They put him in this purple robe, which mockingly symbolizes royalty. It's not just a throwaway part of the story. It's not just something to be skipped along till we get to the actual death of Jesus. This moment. This moment of the mocking and the ridicule and the crown. They are essential to the story. The cross or, or crosses, the crucifixions were not just, they certainly weren't the most efficient way to kill someone, but they were a way of putting the criminal on display. They were a way of showing that the person who was being killed was in fact less than human. Romans, I'm sure many of you know, have heard this before, but they were actually, uh, it, was, it was illegal to crucify a citizen of the Roman Empire. This was something that was reserved for the low, for rebels out on the outskirts of the empire who dared to rise up and pretend that they were something that they were not. It was for runaway slaves and people who had committed such crimes that they could not be allowed to pretend to be on par with humanity. It was a way of saying, you are less than a human being. But what is it about all this mockery that takes us even further than the cross itself? would have more than satisfactorily accomplished. Notice the way, the particular tone and the, the kind of mockery that is here. It is a group of soldiers who are willing to use their authority and their power to demonstrate that Jesus is in fact powerless. You 
say that you are a king. You say that you are a person with authority. You say that you are a person with power. And we will absolutely tear you apart at that very place. The Roman Empire will not allow you to pretend that you are in control. And so what we will do is we'll take this idea that you are a person of power and authority and control and we will show you what that means to us. We will strip you naked and we will beat you with a, 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 a mock scepter that we will put in your hand and we will spit on you and we will kneel before you bleeding from a crown of thorns and we will say all hail great king the way of saying who's in control now and i think this is why this is an essential stop on the way of the cross an essential place that we must come and sit with Jesus for just a moment. Because control mocks us all. And one of the hardest parts about being a human is the way that we fight for control. And yet find it elusive. And the way that we tear each other down in search for some sense of control. I'm walking a fine line here. Because I'm not necessarily recommending to you the feeling of being out of control. It's not exactly great, is it? I don't know what out of control experiences you may have had this last week or last month or last year. This yesterday, I had the feeling I was uh, laughing and I stopped laughing about whatever it is I was laughing about. And I started laughing about how hard I was laughing. And I felt like I was just laughing uncontrollably. A little some tears in my eyes because of the laughter that was just kind of taking me over. That was okay. But I've had other feelings of being out of control that didn't really feel so great to me. I've laughed uncontrollably, but I've also wept uncontrollably too. I've had times in my experiences with my work where I felt quite out of control. Not, not any of you guys. I mean, not that I'm, I'm, you know, I feel fine. You can't control everything, can you? I've had experiences in relationships where I've uh, had friends who I could watch from a distance and it was clear that their lives were spiraling. They were spiraling out of, out of control. 
I watched from a distance, feeling like there just wasn't anything I could do about it. I have uh, had experiences with my own health that I feel like I just could take control of my own body. And some of you are thinking to yourself, just you wait, youngin. I've had experiences in my circles of friendship where somebody was suffering something so deeply in their body and we all wanted to be able to do something about it and we just couldn't and i hate that feeling i hate the feeling of there being a problem that i can't do anything about i'm looking into the future and it doesn't take any kind of particular prophetic insight to see my parents aging. And there's not really a whole lot I can do about some of that. And on top of all that, doggone it, I'm a parent. Which seems to be an experience especially and particularly designed to make me lose my mind by feeling out of control. Can a brother get an amen? So like I said, I would like to have this as something of a conversation today. Y'all tell me I'm not alone. Are there things in your life that make you feel like you are out of control? Doesn't matter if I've already said yours. Somebody tell me some of the things that make you feel out of control. Come on. What's that? Pregnancy. I felt the same way. Having a little brother. And so is having a big sis. What else? Big brothers. Okay, we're still in the big brothers. Yes, yes. Who else? What's it? So your work and your job. Yes. What else? A car accident. Someday we'll have a conversation about the things we do to give ourselves the illusion that we're in control. But yes, okay, the taxes, I'll take that vote. What else? School. What's that? Sharing things. Oh, that is really hard. That is really hard. That is really hard. What's that? Oh, so somebody over here. Somebody over here said something. Yeah? Marriage? You said that out loud. Right there. Now, oh, you're all depending on somebody whose spouse wasn't here today to say that, right? 
Oh. What else? Hey, let's talk about this whole thing for a second. Let's talk about COVID. And was it one of the hardest parts of that, all of us and societally feeling like we were out of control of this issue, like we were just kind of paralyzed and we couldn't do anything about it? And that was awful, wasn't it? What are all those things that make us feel like we are out of control? And you know what? There's something about, there's a, the line that I'm trying to walk here is there are in, in several of these things and many of those things, there are things that we have to do to take control of the things in our life to some extent. It's not this, I'm not saying, you know, forget all kind of sense of control because just be, there's, there's a sense of responsibility, right? Like becoming responsible for the things that you can change and you can affect and the, that you are in charge of. Like that's a good thing. But right there is that line where we obsess with being in control and being in power over all the different aspects of our lives. And it's not just a problem for the adolescents. It is a problem for all of us finding that space where we both exercise our responsibility and yet are willing to live in a world in which we simply are not in control of as much as we wish we were. And I'm not so sure that this part of the story isn't to help underline for us that part of following Jesus together on the way of the cross is learning to live in a world that will mock any idea that we are actually in control. It will strip that away from us just as surely as Jesus was stripped of his own clothes. Isn't it one of the most absurd parts of the story that Jesus himself submitted to this sense of people who would mock him for being out of control? Like a bunch of children looking and saying, you're not the boss of me. These soldiers have the audacity look to Jesus and say, how dare you think that you have any power over us? And Jesus submits to this. Submits to this moment of mockery of his power and authority and control in the world. What does it mean to follow Jesus into this moment? I hope that we all, all, all have not a sense that our, our lives are like continually spiraling out of control. I, I, I wouldn't want that for us, right? But can we learn to be people 
who are willing to walk with Jesus even in the moments where we recognize and we realize that we are not fully in control. It's a hard place to follow Jesus, isn't it? I think it is. And yet more and more, when I think about the cross, as I meditate on the cross, part of it is letting go of that part of myself that has to be in charge of everything. Part of what discipleship means is learning to live and embrace life and loosen our grip on control. Jesus himself submits to this, and part of what we are witnessing and experiencing in this story as we watch it, as we behold it, as we bear witness to this, is that Jesus does this, even though it is terribly ironic, because we believe he is, in fact, in control, right? That Jesus, in fact, does have the power, that he is, in fact, a greater king than the one that these soldiers give allegiance to back in Rome. So why does he let it happen? Why does Jesus put himself in this position? And I would call us back to where we ended when we were thinking about the trials last week. We have to dive into the mystery of what it means for Jesus not just to be crucified for our sake, but to be mocked for our sake. That he is not just crucified in solidarity with us, but he is also mocked and he is taken out of control for our sake and in in solidarity with us too. Jesus experiences this moment just as much as he does the cross with us and for us. Because Jesus knows that for us, we have so many moments in our lives where we are right there with him in this story. And on one hand, what I mean by that is that we are right here with him in the sense that the song that we just sang says, um, ashamed I hear my mocking voice. Crying out, crying out among the scoffers, right? Is that what it says? So we are with Jesus in this story in the sense that we are right there with these soldiers, not as physically, but just as certainly crying out to God, are you really the king? Fighting God's control, fighting God's authority, resisting God's power, resisting any sense that God would have the audacity to be our king. We find ourselves there in that part of the story. And yet. Jesus still is right there with us. We also find ourselves with Jesus in this story. If we can put ourselves in his place. And receive with him 
the same mocking tones that the soldiers cry out for him. Because sometimes it feels like life places a crown of thorns on your head. Sometimes it feels like you have a purple robe around your shoulders and you're being spit on and beaten. And it's, sometimes it feels like there is a whole host of voices that are crying out to you, speaking against you, saying, how dare you think you are in control of anything in this life? And I think part of the story of the cross is that Jesus in that moment is with us and he knows the pain of the mocking voice telling us that we are out of control. And in those moments where we encounter powerlessness, we may rest assured that Jesus, as ironic as it may have been, that Jesus submitted to that same experience. He has been there with us. In the story of the mockery of Jesus, we see just as fully as in the physical crucifixion that Jesus allows himself to be exactly the thing that we hate. Vulnerable. The exact thing that we protect ourselves so much from, the sense of being vulnerable. Jesus opened himself broadly to it. So Jesus is with us, but also in this story, it shows us the links that God is going to for us. The mockery is just as much for our sake as the blood of the crucifixion is, because here in this space, God will show us that he is willing to undergo the most dehumanizing experience of our lives to be present for our sake. We may know with full assurance that Jesus went through this not just because he wanted to, not because he was trying out something new. Jesus experienced this for us. This is the depth of the love of Jesus. That he was willing to experience that so painful moment of being mocked and ridiculed. And y'all, how much would you do to escape being mocked like this, right? And yet this is part of the price of our salvation and our redemption. And Jesus willingly offers it. Maybe we would be tempted to think that the physical story itself would be something that would be too light of a price. How dare we say it? Maybe we would be tempted to think just like anybody can kind of grit their teeth and hold on to something and, you know, have their finger pricked. Maybe we have too much bravado about the physical pain that we can sometimes go through and experience. 
But that's not all that Jesus paid for us. It was that most terrible psychological experience of being completely humiliated. And this is part of what the gift of God is for us. Part of what we speak of when we say that the cross, the way of the cross is gospel. It's good news. Even though this sort of story seems absolutely terrible. Is that in the face of the greatest humiliation. God still chose not to abandon us. He chose to be present with us. Even in this part of the way of the cross. Y'all. I will say this as a way of kind of wrapping everything up today. This whole experience of like trying to have our control pried out of our hands. You know what other human experience I think it's most closely tied to? I mean, there are lots of things that can make us feel like we are losing control. But there's like one aspect of human life, one aspect of our hearts that I think invites us into a way of low control. Isn't that just the price of loving people? What love is there that is also able to seize control? The experience of love itself in all of the different aspects of our lives, our love, our deep love for our friends and for our family, for our, our parents and our children, for our, our spouses, for the people in our neighborhood, for the people that we go to work with, though anybody in our lives that we love, anytime we allow ourselves to fully give ourselves to the experience of love, is it not also, isn't the price of that? That we have to be willing to face our lack of control. And my friends, this is the depth of the love of God for us. He would choose to love us even if it costs control. How great is the love of Jesus.